G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode, I got to sit down with Stephanie Healy, an occupational therapist who is employed by the education department that specifically looks at improving children's ability to engage in the curricular and learning activities. I kind of want to know more about what you do. Because obviously I don't know anything about, well, no. not anything, but I don't know much about, much about it. Yeah. PEDS or especially working in schools because it seems to be something that's like even getting rarer, actually having OTs in schools. Definitely. Yeah. Um, are we on? It's just talking. Oh, it's just talking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. In Queensland is the only state that's that actually employs therapists in in the schools, like by the Department of Education. And yeah, I'm not really sure what happens in other states, but with the NDIS having rolled out and just having more of that focus on the community and home side of things, I think there's less of therapists coming into schools because of that kind of limit I think and schools in Queensland I know there um some schools are saying they don't want NDIS therapists coming in because they come they're obviously coming in to do that home home and community goal sort of work they're not coming in to do educationally relevant stuff so if they're an NSO which is a non-school organization that's a list of organizations that have been approved by the department to come in and they've got funding to basically provide the same service that we do. So that's like your Montrose Access, so CPL kind of places, like sort of NGO. your larger NGO type of organisations usually. They yep. can come in and do the same educationally relevant adjustments that we do, but um, they're the only ones – Mainly that come in, but obviously it's up to principals' discretion what they want to happen in their school. So it's not like a statewide thing; it's up to the school almost. Yeah, like who's, it's kind who's of allowed in? <laughs> basically, it's yeah, pretty much. So you're you're working in primary schools, or do you do high um, schools as well? Yeah, we do primary, high school, special school, and early childhood development program as well. So little three and four year olds. So many and varied, <laughs> bit of everything. Bit of everything. Everything. Yeah. And so, what sort of things do you actually do school-wise? A whole broad range of things. Obviously, um, with the different age groups, there'd be various things. But um, we can do um, transitions. So, looking at transition planning for those little students that are coming from your ECDPs, early childhood development programs, kids transitioning primary to high school, what that's going to look like. A lot of the times it's for those kids that have got physical needs, what's physical access going to look like, what's seating and positioning in the classroom going to look like. Um, and that can happen at, at all year levels for those students with physical impairments, but it often does happen at those transition between school times. Students with autism, we get a lot of referrals for support with um, sensory needs um, and managing those in the classroom, um, following routines and things like that as well. Kids with intellectual disabilities, it's quite similar, some of that following routines, kind of sequencing that kind of stuff and hand, 
handwriting across the board for all our kids. We get a lot of those. Explain um, the handwriting thing for me because I never really understood why or what we actually like what OTs actually do with well, handwriting. What we actually do with handwriting. Because it's obviously like adult mental health. It's not really something I've ever <laughs> done or dealt with. No, um, handwriting, oftentimes we get referrals saying the students can't keep up with handwriting or they can't form letters appropriately or correctly. So, I'll generally go in and do um, sort of an informal kind of assessment. I base it off the McMaster's handwriting protocol, which used to be a free download from the um, McMaster's university but i don't know if it is anymore i'll have a look um, if it is i'll put a link yeah so can um, check it out. and i'll generally go in with that and have a look at what their close copying is like what their dictation is like like writing what i've dictated um have a look at them writing like depending on their age a couple of sentences or a paragraph about a favorite activity a pet something like that just so I can get a look at the difference between their writing if they're copying versus if they're having to think about it themselves, um, all of that kind of thing usually. Sometimes for the kids we do recommend some more practice with um, obviously those letter formations and things like that normally in the lower Years, but in the upper years, and for those kids with severe kind of multiple impairments, what I find that I'm recommending a lot is alternatives to handwriting. So, going on to keyboarding or alternate pencils. So, that sort of would look like a chart with kind of your four letters on it, for instance, like A, a to D, and you might say to the student, um, what they will work out what they want to write first. If they're verbal, they'll tell you, or if they're nonverbal, they might put it into their communication device, and then you sort of look at the spelling and go and go is is it on this page? And they can say yes or no. And if it's not on that page, then they go to the next page. You go through all the letters there, and they can sort of select letters that way too. Or you can do similar with switches on the computer. So yeah, lots of different things. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of sort of assistive tech stuff involved. Yeah, there there is a bit, especially with- I would find that very fun. The special schools and those multiply impaired kids, which is why I just went along to the Isaac conference to try and find out a bit more about that, that space. Because so, what's, what's Isaac? That's the International Society for Assistive and Augmentative Communication. So, they had their- International conference in Australia for the first time on the Gold Coast. That was very exciting, interesting, terrible. Terrible. It it was cold. It was cold. I have to say that. (laughs) (laughs) But it was was lovely. One day of winter per year. It it, it was lovely. It was lovely. Um, Yeah, and it was great. Got to hear Linda Burkhart speak down there. She's a bit of a guru on kind of the switch progression process and has worked a lot with kids with complex impairments like Angelman syndrome, cortical vision impairment, things like that. So, that was pretty awesome. Like you can read the documents but to hear the person actually speaking about it and sort of talking it through, yeah, that was really beneficial. So, with the switches and stuff, I'm assuming that there's some sort of progression. You mentioned it that you were learning about that at the conference. Mm to 
improve their ability? Like, is is the aim? What, what's the aim? Like, is the aim to get them to handwrite or just communication in general, or is it up to the kid family slash whatever? Usually, or how does what's the actual sort of progression? How does it progress with handwriting? Yeah, or with the switches or yeah. any of the technology. It's kind of yeah, based on what the student is able to do, what the family wants, what the school has the capacity for as well, what technology is available and also if private therapists are involved because if they're involved and they're sort of working towards a particular AAC that they want the student to use and whatnot, then we'll obviously try and work towards that too or we we might step out and say, okay, there might be too many people in this pie. We'll just let you work on that that AAC side of things and we'll jump out. So, So do you work – so, if they have a private therapist from outside the school, do you work with them or is it kind of like, no, you're working with your private therapist, I'll work with the people that don't or – It depends. So, if they have a private therapist that does impact on – how we prioritize them, how soon that we see the students. So, if I've got a private therapist that is working on the same issues that the school want us to work on or if they're a non-school organization that can come into the school, then we'll prioritize that student a bit lower. Um, If they don't have any private therapists at all, we'll prioritize them a bit higher. So, yeah, just depends. But we will definitely like contact the private therapists and say – what are you doing and make sure that we're not crossing over or working against each other and Yeah, because I can imagine if you're working together, you probably may even have more time. I don't know what your time, if you've got more time than they would normally get with the student. But I guess even combined, that's more time the student gets with a therapist. Yeah, yeah. You're only relatively new up here. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me, how did you get into OT? How did OT find you? Oh, how did OT find me? I thought you might ask me this question and this is a long story, I have Um, to tell you. I like long stories. (laughs) I actually kind of fell into it by accident. That wasn't Um, long at all. (laughs) That's the start of the story. Um, My mum mentioned it to me when I was at high school and I kind of went, "Mm, don't really know what it is, but it sounds like it's for people who are a lot smarter than me, so... Yeah, no, and I had my heart set on nursing from a past experience that I'd had with a nurse. Um, went into that, didn't enjoy it, dropped out. Mum and dad sort of said, well, you need to do something. You can't just drop out and do nothing. So, I was like, oh, well, I'll go do this this OT thing and see how it goes. And, yeah, just loved it right from the word go. I could, like, yeah, see how relevant it was and I was I really loved the idea of occupation as a means to health and yeah and that was on the were you the sunshine, on the coast? sunshine coast yeah yeah with our good friend anita yes shout hi, out hi, to anita. anita yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you you went pretty much straight out of uni into working in schools up here yep that was my first job it still is my first job <laughs> and loved it yeah loved it yeah what is it about or is that where you, like, when you were going through uni, is that where you sort of thought that's where I want to be or what was your what was your thought pattern through uni about where you were going to end up? Yeah, Peds was an interest area, but I wasn't, like, stuck to it, like, must work in Peds. This is my only option. I applied for a whole range of jobs when I finished. There was a couple of areas that I wasn't super keen on, like, I'm not super keen on that sort of hospital ward kind of work that's not really for me or like your vocational rehab. I think that kind of stuff takes a a certain person Mm. to 
want to do that. It's not for me either. But I applied for anything and everything and I applied with the department a couple of times, had no luck, and there was two jobs going up this way, Mackay and Townsville, and I applied for both of those. And I remember speaking to the person who was advertising for them at the time or teeing up interviews and she said, oh, best best case scenario, you'll get offered both and you'll get to choose which which location you want, Townsville or Mackay. And funnily enough, I did get offered both jobs and got to choose choose my location, Townsville or Mackay. So Definitely made the right choice. Definitely made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Mackay. I'm not sorry, Mackay. Um, that's awesome. All right. So, and is this your calling? Is this where you reckon you're going to spend sort of a large chunk of your career or is it, is it spark? Cause I know, like, say when I first graduated and I moved, I was in mental health, but as I learned new things or saw new things, it was like, Oh, I'm going to go and try that or I'm going to go and try this. Is that similar for you or you, you reckon you found the, 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 your space? I don't know. It's it's very early in my career still, so I don't really know if there's other areas that I want. Like I kind of see other things sometimes and go, oh, that'd be interesting. But then I'm so happy with what I'm doing. I'm kind of like I don't want to leave something that I'm so happy with. So yeah, not not too sure, but definitely education is a space that I like to be in. Peds is definitely a space that I would like to stay in. It's funny, um, my whole family is in education except my sister but none of us are teachers my dad's a business manager my mum's a teacher aide and I'm an OT in schools and we we say to my sister you just need to be become a teacher and we'll have the whole set yeah you'd be able to start your own school (laughs) pretty much yeah so I have a a suspicion just based on talking with various people around the world that actually having OTs in schools essentially employed by the education department is quite rare. Have you spoken to other OTs like from other countries around this sort of stuff? I haven't, actually. If not, well, that answers that. So now not. Um, Why do you think or do you think there's a benefit as opposed to the sort of private um, and then work into a school kind of model? I think the benefit with being employed by the education department is that you get a really good understanding of the context. I do think one of the pitfalls with it sometimes is that you're just in this one context and you're not able, and you're not sort of seeing the student's whole picture. You're only seeing them in the school, especially, you know, because the way we kind of learn at um, uni is, you know, to consider the child's whole context school school home and all the person's whole context, work home, all those kinds of things. So, Mm -hmm. it is a little bit different in that sense that we are just focused in the school. But just from coming into contact with private therapists in my role, I don't think that they have as good an understanding of the of the educational context and how things work in the educational context as therapists who are employed doing that job. So, that's where I think one of the benefits is. Does it, Do you get the opportunity in your job to like do home visits or like see the home side of it or is it just the school stuff that you- No, just the school stuff, yeah. Do you think that would help being able to- like if it was possible to sort of, I guess, widen your- Whatever you'd scope. call it, scope. Yep, yeah, that's the word. 
do you think that would even just being able to say do a home visit or that kind of thing would do you think that would help uh in the service that you're able to deliver even if you're still only able to deliver service at school do you think that would help the service you're able to deliver that's a good question it's the only Um, questions i ask (laughs) of course um i don't think so um because our service is really just focused on what's happening in the educational context and we can like phone liaise meet with the parents phone liaise meet with the private therapist i think as far as what we're doing in the education setting we do get enough information from home it would be different doing doing home visits that's for sure I just know that's one of the things that, so when I was working in the acute mental health unit and it was kind of similar in that we would only really see people in that traditional role when they were really unwell and in mm. hospital. And it's probably the same for most hospital wards if you have people that sort of come in regularly for different things. But we, because we only got to see them in that real narrow thing, one of the things that I enacted was for me to take people on home visits so I can actually get a better idea of, well, what are we actually doing while they're in here? I don't have no idea how they live at home or what even what yeah. home looks like, what you know resources they've got at home in terms of do they even have a laundry? Do they even know how to use a kitchen or like how big is it? Um, so that was one of the things that I pushed for. Luckily, I had a bit of support, so it wasn't too hard to That's push awesome. for, for that. But I just found that being able to – get a better idea around that, yeah, that outside context helped me with what I was actually doing. Obviously, I'm not trying to say that schools are like acute mental health wards, but- No, of course not, no. Um, I think any sort of service where you only see, I guess, part of the context, context is yeah. going to make it, no, oh, not difficult necessarily, but it's it's going to have its challenges. Yeah, it can sometimes and like, you know, when if we if we have trouble getting in touch with the parents or those private therapists, then yeah, that does make it tricky if you've got the good communication lines and that's good. But if not, yeah, that would probably be when it would be good to be able to see them outside so that you could work that stuff out for yourself rather than necessarily having to liaise with all of these other people. The other thing, I guess, the difference between, say, what you're doing and, say, a private therapist is obviously a private therapist has been sought out by the parents. Like, how does how do you, I guess, would you call them referrals? Yeah. How do you pick up your well, referrals? Yeah. So, what happens is the, sco- the request for service, we call it, has to come from the school. So, preferably from the classroom teacher, but we can get them from spe- special education and head of special education teachers, guidance officers um, and also other like specialist teachers that might be involved with the students. So, we've got advisory teachers for students that are verified in physical impairment, vision and hearing impairment. So, referrals possibly can come through there as well. The parent has to sign a consent form to say that they want the service and occasionally the parent will contact the school and say, I'd like the EQ therapists to be involved with my child and the school will do the referral that way. But generally, it's comes from the school staff, yeah. Do the... So, do you ever get it that sort of the parents are a bit resistant to it? Like if it's been identified by, say, a classroom teacher or something that uh, they may benefit from seeing the OT kind of thing, has it ever been – or you probably wouldn't even see it 
that stage. I haven't had that. Um, Sometimes some parents can be sort of, I guess, not as as interested in engaging with us and whether that's because they haven't made the referral themselves or they don't really understand the value possibly, but- I haven't had any parents that have been resistant and like, no, because if that was the case, then they wouldn't have signed the consent form. So, the request wouldn't come through in the first place. Yeah, you wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, pretty much. To start with kind of thing. Yeah. Tell me, can you tell me any big success stories? What's what's one that really sticks out in your mind? I I like stories. I had a feeling you were going to ask me this too. Uh, um, One that I was really happy with was a student that I was seeing out in a regional area getting him set up with a joystick to access the computer. So, he had cerebral palsy getting him – set up with that and able to use computer, that was really exciting. And every time I I went to the school and he saw me, he would point to the to the computer and I'd say, no, not today. I'm actually here to do something else. <laughs> and that was so successful that the parents actually went out and bought their own joystick for him to for use. Home. Yeah, with their own money. So, yeah, that was a really awesome one. So, when they get that kind of stuff, is it like, say, the joystick, for example, is it like a specialist item or is it something that, you can buy like a like a gaming kind of joystick and you just teach them how to use it for yeah, no, school this, stuff. This is a, a specialist item. So we get our joysticks and other kind like switches, joysticks, keyboards that are kind of adapted specifically for people with disabilities. We get those from Spectronics who are down down in Brisbane. So generally like obviously where possible, try to use mainstream stuff because that's generally a little bit cheaper mm. for parents and schools. But, yeah, a lot of that stuff comes from Spectronics. I could imagine some of that specialist stuff would be quite pricey. Quite expensive, uh, anything, yeah. Anytime you put medical on anything, it triples yeah. the price, as they yeah. say. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, just because I think uh, I'm assuming you probably do some sensory stuff as well. Definitely um, and that's a lot of that. obviously Definitely. something that we have done a bit in mental health. And that was always my big argument with sensory stuff is, yeah, we're supposed to be setting people up with this sustainable, say, a sensory kit for them. Mm. And then we would fill it with things that cost thousands of dollars and that most people just couldn't afford. I'm like, that was always my argument was if we, yes, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to find things that they can get from, you know, the shops down the road or make or things that they actually have access to. That they might be able to, yep, it's all well and good to use this really flash stuff in hospital, but then what do they do when they go home? I can't afford it. They can't make their own kit. So, mm. I always wondered about some of those sort of – some. I can understand some technologies need to be really customized, especially around wheelchairs and that kind of thing. You have all sorts of different controls now for wheelchairs, mouth and ears and any, any muscle pretty much. You can connect up a controller for a wheelchair, but – you're not going to buy that off the shelf, but some things I would assume if you could get them off the shelf, why not? Mm, yeah, and the cost of things is definitely something that we take into consideration when we're buying new stock, especially with this techie stuff and also with the sensory stuff, like you were saying, because usually it's the responsibility of the school to actually buy those things like we loan them out for a trial and the school if it's successful then has to buy them usually they buy them the parent doesn't buy them that's kind of part of how it's set out in the school needing to make reasonable 
reasonable adjustments for the student that they'll provide those adjustments. So that, yeah, when we're sort of ordering things, we might look at them and go, this is good, but is a school going to pay for five, six hundred dollars, a thousand dollars for this item? So, mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was, I used to laugh at the, they used to be, I can't remember who it used to be, but they used to sell sensory stuff. And they used to sell a beanbag for $700. I'm like, who the hell is going to pay $700 for a freaking beanbag? And Crazy. it was just a final beanbag. And when you buy one from Kmart and mm. fill it with $2 bag of beans and- Or make there one. You go. Or the make sewing one. process wouldn't be that hard, you wouldn't think. Who knows? They might find a passion for sewing in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I just- uh, so, so when the school- So, when you say the school's responsible, so is the school- Will the school be buying that for the classroom or for that actual student? It's not necessarily for that student. It's for, I guess, their pool of yeah, okay. equipment or resources that they have at the school. It will be used with that student, obviously, but if that student leaves or if there's other students that could benefit, then they can use it with other students as well. So, sometimes do you think- like you get a student, they need something, the school may already have it, that kind of sometimes, stuff. Sometimes. Sometimes that happens, which is really Win. good. Yeah. Because that means we don't have to hire it and they don't have to buy it. Brilliant. So, do you guys have uh, – so, in your department, do you have like a stock, a set of stock kind of thing yeah, that you can try do. or do you get it from somewhere else? Yeah, we have a – we kind of purchase our own stuff. So, we have a budget for OT and a, a separate budget for physio and – speech and all that kind of stuff and we can buy our own specific stuff within that budget and we have a, another budget which is for larger items so that's for your kind of mounts for wheelchairs your joysticks your keyboards um uh desks like custom desks custom chairs all of those bigger ticket items come out of that bucket but your smaller kind of sensory items like lower costs like boards things like that just come out of the OT budget. Is it ever is that all is that the always the process or is it sort of if mum and dad can't buy it first that you go down that road or is that just the standard like the school will this, buy the stuff? That's usually the standard process. Yeah, the school will buy it. Is that legislated? I have a feeling it might be something I just remember hearing my partner talk about like Disability Discrimination Act and how they kind of have to have access. Yeah. I I think I I should know this because <laughs> because yes. we because we because we are guided by the DDA um sorry the disability Act, yeah. discrimination act disability standards for education all that but I'm pretty sure that it is legislated and part of policy that if it is a part of reasonable adjustments that need yeah. to be made for that student at school. So, school for to. example, they need a desk at a certain height to be able to use or they need to have a hoist so that they can be changed at school, then, yeah, it's the school's responsibility to purchase that and have that available for the student. And there are funding avenues that the schools can access, but oftentimes that just needs to come out of their general school budget. And I would imagine that, and I could be wrong that part of your role would possibly be with some of these tech things, maybe even educating the staff to like this is how it use or safely use it or definitely, definitely can go in and do PD on how the tech is used or sometimes if we're recommending software, we'll go in and do kind of a whole 
PD around this is the software like iPad apps. This is the mm-hmm. software. This is how it works. These are the different kind of adjustments that you can make using the software. So, yeah, that is part of what we do too. Do you find the iPad stuff, this is just my own curiosity, do you find the iPad stuff tends to be used more with the younger kids more than the, say, high school kids? No, I would actually say that the opposite is okay. probably true just because we're often using the iPads and that for curriculum access, like, to be able to complete written work for those students that have got physical impairments so they might fatigue and they're looking for a quicker way to get the work done or for those students with autism who are struggling with handwriting or they're not really motivated with it, the iPad's quicker, more more motivating and easier for them to kind of edit as well. I know some students with ASD have difficulty with that whole editing, drafting kind of process and having it on the tech is a a lot quicker for them too. Do they use a pen? On the iPad? Or a stylus. Or Apple Pen. I've got one here somewhere. Somewhere. No, usually it's an on-screen keyboard or a physical keyboard, yeah. Okay. So, it's more around just providing. Do you, do you think the, it's the iPad itself or just having some kind of computer? Like, I'm assuming back in the day it would have been like, here, yeah, it's a laptop instead. It's yeah, just, it's- iPads are probably a little more accessible and cheaper than a lot of laptops nowadays. Yeah, it's definitely not just just iPads. Some of them are using laptops too. It just depends on the student's needs and what's easier for them to access. The nice thing about the iPad is that you can get some different keyboards that they kind of group the letters together so they can click on a – like one keyboard we've got is um, – in the Super Keys app, which is a quick software app, and it kind of groups all of the keys on the keyboard into five um, categories, and they're all different colors. So, for mm-hmm. those students that have got a physical impairment, they might have a tremor. They can hit into that red space where those five keys are, and then it brings them up larger so that they've got a larger target area to then yep. hit those keys and oh, that's cool. get that happening. So, what sort of apps are like sort of the more common ones because that's something else I'm interested in as well. Um, Quick Software supply a lot of the apps that we recommend. So, SuperKeys, that's the keyboard that I was just talking about Mm -hmm. and the clicker suite of apps. So, that's Sentences, Connect, Docs and there's another one. Clicker books, but I haven't used that. So, Sentences is kind of one that you'd use with the younger years. That's kind of just your beginning writing you can input a sentence into it and it'll break up the sentence into like they click on a box which has got each word in it and you can have it so that it's randomized they've got to put it in order or it can be in order for them for those really beginning ones it has a keyboard so they can input some of their own stuff if they want or then they progress onto the docs which is more for your high school students where you can just have a big bank of words that they can choose from so if you know that your topic is Australian history, for instance, then you can input all of those words or that vocab for that sort of subject or that unit in and the student, rather than having to type in those words as they're writing, they can just select them from the bank. Man, I want to have a go at this. (laughs) I reckon that would be how I'd write all my assignments if I had it. And, yeah, we use some of the more mainstream ones too, like – Dragon Speak and the the swipe typing keyboards and that too. Yep, yep. Yeah. What other main? Because I know that's probably one thing that most people having a listen will go out and have a look. Are there any other sort of mainstream ones that you use or you've seen kids use or you think might be useful for Some different things? Apps that are fairly cheap and good. Um, 
uh, SnapType Pro. So that's literally you can take a photo of a worksheet that the student has to do and then they can type in directly onto that worksheet. So that's really cool. Um, There's a lot of good different word word processing apps that you can take photos in and then draw onto the photo so the student could take a photo of whiteboard, for instance, like Notability and explain everything. Those ones are pretty cheap. I do use Notability myself. Yeah, Notability is a good one. Um, Explain everything is really cool too because they can take a photo and then actually hit record and then they could possibly record their notes with that photo and then they can go back and press later and hear Back. So, they could take a photo of like the board and even record the teacher yeah. explaining what it is. And with yeah. that, so, you might use that with say, kids that maybe need a little bit more processing time or something like that yeah. so they can go back over it. Yeah. Or, or the kids that have got physical impairments too and can't physically like keep up with writing it down, they can take a photo of the board, hit, hit record, record what the teacher said and then they've got their notes there that they can go back to. Yeah, that's cool. Mm, that's what a else? good one. Do you use any games? Because everyone thinks like PE is just going to be fun. I have to say I don't use a lot of games. Not not really. I think if I was in the private setting, probably more. But why? In the education context. (sighs) Private ATs just want to get paid to play games. I think because what, what I tend to find my role is more in education is kind of that compensation more role like meeting the student where they're at and trying to work out how they can access and participate at school with the skills that they've got we do do a little bit of working on improving skills in some areas but I'd say compensation is our main the main kind of way that we work whereas I think private therapists are more working on trying to improve a child's skills and I think a lot of the games the gamey type apps and things that are out there are more aimed at that skill development level mm. rather than the compensation. But definitely we do recommend some little gamey ones for like tracing letters and yep. especially for those really beginning kids that we're sort of trying to work out like how much they understand like little cause and effect apps that, that they can hit on and it brings things up. Yeah, A lot of those ones are through which company is that? Switch it, I think. Switch it, I think that's that's who they're called. No, I remembered. It's it's actually inclusive technology. Switch it is the programs, not the games. Okay, so yeah. if they like to search that, they'll find those sort yeah. of apps. Inclusive technologies, yeah. So you're saying that you're more of that sort of compensatory as opposed to advancement of skill. Do you think is that a just a time? like the amount of time you have to spend with kids thing? Yeah, I think it's because we're doing more of a consultancy role rather than a direct therapy role, yeah. Is there space or is there a place for a direct therapy role within schools? I think that there's wiggle room there to sort of do a little bit, but because the kind of scope of our service is – helping the students to access and participate in the school curriculum. I don't know. I had an idea of where that was going, but I don't know where it went. Well, do you think it would do you think it would be of benefit to say even employ say another OT that might be sole purpose to do that sort of more advancement of skills as opposed to just the compensatory stuff or do you think that's better left just to the private OTs? I don't know. I think 
school, like obviously kids are spending a lot of time at school, so it could be a good opportunity to work on those skills. But generally how we work or how things work in the in the department is school is for learning, not hmm. not for therapy. So that's just that's just the scope of how we roll. I just yeah, I just think yeah, like you said, the kids spend what six hours a day, five days a week, most of them if they're not wagging um, <laughs> at school. Like that's a fairly big chunk of anyone's week, mm. and I just know. My partner is a head of special ed. I just know hearing the stuff that, you know, she does with kids and even the things that she wishes she could do with kids. It's all around that sort of advancement. Like they're quite good at being reactive to things that happen, but then it's, they find it sometimes is very difficult to sort of, well, where to from here kind of thing. Cause then you're trying to coordinate, um, therapists from advisory teachers, therapists, yeah. Yeah. parents their own teachers, the students themselves, and you're trying to, like, coordinate all of these people into doing something that's sort of more than what they're currently in the in, employed to do. Um, I just wonder whether it would be – and I guess that some of the private therapists would be doing that kind of stuff if they do come in. I couldn't see them just looking at the sort of compensatory stuff, or is that what they do as well? Again, it would come back to the principal's – discretion of what they want that therapist to do. If they are coming in under NSO, the whole purpose of that is to do that same compensatory kind of stuff. But if they're letting private therapists come in for other reasons, then possibly they could be pulling students out to do that one-on-one therapy kind of role. So, is the big picture kind of thing more that the, say, therapy department is there to, I guess, mitigate some of the barriers to the kids engaging in the school system? And then it's up to kind of the special ed department to then take that further or? Um, we're kind of doing that together. Yeah. Yeah. It's all confusing to me. I'm sorry. No, it's not <laughs> your fault. Um, I guess I'm like, because I'm, the, the, the areas that I've worked, and obviously it's mental health is quite different, but the areas I've worked, it doesn't have that, I don't th- well, not that I have ever picked up. I've never picked up a workplace that has that clear segregation between we just want to get you learning and we want to, you know, everywhere I've worked has always been we want to improve your life as best we can in this time. And it's usually just the time that's kind of the the the, the, the limiting factor. Um, but it, may, it makes sense. That's what you're funded to do. I've just never worked in an area like that. My yeah. little My little brain can't. Get yeah, its head around it. <laughs> it is it is a pretty narrow scope service in that way, and that's something I've thought about it as an early career professional. Should I be going out and doing something else to kind of expand mm. my, my skills a bit? Yeah. And that's why you go to conferences and learn all the cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you could implement one thing, what would you want to implement? In the schools. Mm. In your current role. Because you work across multiple schools. I'm assuming most of the schools Definitely. are quite different, have different needs, different kids, that kind of thing. But if you could implement one thing, say, into your role, what would it be? Definitely I'd like to get involved in implementing more so- social and emotional 
regulation, resilience kind of stuff into schools. That's something that I'm really passionate about and, yeah, that's something that I'd love to do. It's exciting. I'm just doing a program trying to work on develop students' kind of emotional regulation skills and things like that and that's something that I'd love to be able to expand more broadly and I guess I'd lo- I wish I could kind of make a change that all of the schools could have more time to do that with all of their students because I think it's something that's really important yeah so would you do you think it'd be something you'd want to do sort of one-to-one with students or more of a like community community development definitely kind of health promotion kind definitely of definitely as a group like a whole school kind of program approach one-to-one is not normally how I would suggest to schools to run it but just generally if we do recommend those kind of programs to schools like zones of zones of regulation the alert program other programs like that we generally want it to be run as a whole class program or hey if if they're going to run it as a whole school program that would be amazing is there any schools you know of that do that kind of stuff, like anywhere? There are, yeah. Up there here are or some. sort yeah, of yeah. down south? Oh, yeah, really? yeah, up here. Yeah, so there are some. Why can't we? I think- what's the, Is it just a financial barrier or what's the barrier? My perception, and I could be wrong, is that it's the actual pressure of having to fit everything into the school day, having to get through all of that curriculum stuff because sometimes when we do make suggestions to schools they say oh we don't have time for anything else and I think it probably comes back to the actual admin at that school and what they value what's sort of priorities for that school Um, like the other day I was at a school again out in the regions and they'd prioritized in their prep class that every day the students go out and do a do a gross motor circuit and I'll for like 20 minutes enough and me and the physio were just like wow this is amazing but at other schools if you suggested something like that would be beneficial they'd say we just don't have the time we have to get through all of the curriculum and things like that so uh, i know uh my mom's a teacher i've grown up around teachers and schools and that i know they're under the pump um and i can understand like if you if you if it's something that needs additional time then they go that time's got to come from somewhere kind of yeah, thing yeah um but yeah, it'd be it'd be good to see something like that rolled out, sort of on a big scale. Because I know, you know, kids with low resilience, or even sort of something that I see a lot of is a sort of low emotional intelligence. Other kids, quite often that I would see later when I was yeah, working. <laughs> so. it, yeah, it has the it has the flow on effects for their whole life. You know, like how they're gonna transition out of school, making friends, having having productive relationships, being able to manage the stress and everything that happens in their lives. And especially with those extracurriculum pressures that are happening at schools now, I think those skill kids need those skills now 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 more than ever, really. Yeah. I mean kids nowadays are different to like when I was a kid. It's a uh, it's changing so quickly. I don't know how you guys keep up for one. Yeah. It's it's hard. It's hard, I have to say. Kids are just like, even now, like high school, they're like little adults already. I know. Whereas I was, I still don't think I'm an adult. But yeah, just I see some of the students here at the uni and I'm like, you guys are behaving like I did when I was five, six, seven years older than you, probably better than I behave now. <laughs> um, yeah, kids, they just seem to be growing up. Growing up fast. So quickly. And I'm like, how does that? impact on I guess the the services and the therapy that you deliver like it would have to be so rapidly changed like the even the occupations that kids engage in now 
compared to, say, five years ago. Yeah, well, definitely, like, computer access and iPad access, like, has um, increased a lot. Some schools have got bring-your-own-device classes. That's that's what they do. That's that's how they roll. So, the kids being able to access a computer is, is much more important now, I'd say, than it was in the, cl- in the past. Like, I know when I was at school, we had a computer lab and, and we went there to use computers and it was like a, a, a once-a-week thing. But, mm. you know, ki- kids are doing all of their assignments pretty much on computers these days and um, they've got laptops coming into the classrooms. I've got iPads coming into the classrooms. Yeah, that's probably the biggest like change that I can think of. Yeah, I mean that's the like I am coming back to the uni after eight or nine years since I graduated. Mm-hmm. I can't remember ever going to a lecture and seeing someone with a computer. Mm. Like this was early two thousands or mid two thousands, but. Like it was always you had to print your lecture notes out and then you'd go and write in them like while you were there. And that's the first thing my students do now is rock up to class, open up the laptop, even if they don't even need the laptop for that lesson. It's like just have it now. Just open up the laptop until I tell them to put it away because we don't need it, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) And I do wonder how on terms of the, I guess, the some of the issues that you may see in your work, whether that technology may even be having some negative impacts. Because I know there's a lot of people, you, you throw a stone on the internet and find an article about how it's ruined people's attention spans and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I definitely think that it's ruined mine, like, you know, getting on the tech while you're watching TV or while you're having a, having a conversation, like not just concentrating on one thing. But um, with kids, I think we're seeing it a lot in the younger years rather than the older years, kids coming to school and having under uh, underdeveloped fine, fine and gross motor skills because they have spent a lot of time on those devices rather than engaging with more of those real-world activities yeah. and also those students that can have quite fixed interests like your students with ASD, they can they can become quite fixated on the iPad, and we can sort of get referrals. And one of the issues is student student has has meltdown when we take take away the iPad. So okay. yeah, probably in those early years, we're definitely seeing it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of the fixation. Obviously, the attention span is something that's quite obvious. There's no such thing as delayed. Gratitude or anything anymore? No, definitely not. Delay gratification. But, um, yeah, how do you, like, is that, what do you do for that? It's very difficult. We kind of, for most students with ASD, we kind of try and work around a visual schedule. So, you know, these are the times that you're going to get the iPad in the day or have a first then, first work, then iPad. Like for something that we've really got to wean them off, then it might be like first work for five minutes and then iPad for five minutes. And then we might gradually increase the amount of work and reduce the amount of iPad. Because uh, so, and again, my very limited knowledge of ASD, but is it's something that your interventions with those kids need to be like quite structured definitely definitely need they they enjoy the structure or they they need the structure yeah definitely need to be quite structured especially if you're making a big change like that like wanting to get them off the ipad they need to be able to understand that the ipad's not gone it is coming back just we're doing this now 
Yeah. And you did, I would assume that you would need to also sort of explain that to the parent because the kid didn't get that way on their own. Yeah. I'm assuming that the iPad was probably used as a babysitting device or. (laughs) And that is something that we can find hard if we're trying to implement a a routine or change a student's behavior in the school environment if that's not being followed up at home which sometimes it isn't that can make life really hard yeah and does it so for kids like that say with a a kid with this sort of like need to have the ipad does that delay them from doing like from progressing at school Um, or is it just more of an annoying Thing or what's the actual sort of I guess outcome or what's why does it why do they want it to change? Yeah, it just kind of stops them from being able to complete the curriculum work that they need to complete, and kind of I guess stops the school from actually understanding where the student is at with their learning if they if they're tantruming all the time because they're not able to play this game on the iPad, they can't get it and actual picture does the student understand or is it just related to the ipad or because i've wondered and i've worked with a few people where not exactly the same thing but where there's some sort of reliance on something whether it's a person's company or whatever it is where there's kind of two ways to deal with it it's either wean them off whatever it is or incorporate it into what you need it constructively to do Mm. so I would think because I just know at the uni now they they push a lot of sort of blended learning and using technologies and I don't know how that's pushed at schools. Obviously, it's been a long time since I was in high school Um, and I went to a high school that was at the time sort of, you know, country leader at technology. We all had computers and that kind of thing. So, even that I was a bit sheltered from what, you know, normal technology use in in a high school might be. Yeah. Um. Is it something that they push? Is you like in just for the general student population? Is that sort of including a lot of that more technology into the learning? Again, it probably depends on the school that you're at. Yeah. Okay. Could I just definitely think- the teachers use it use it a lot. They'll use, like I see teachers sort of getting things up all all of the time, like projected onto the screen or bringing up videos for the students to watch. And sometimes they have little apps that they use for like classroom management and communication like Class Dojo is one where they can sort of – all the kids have a little avatar and the teacher can like feed them little treats if if they're good and their avatar gets gets bigger or they can take – Like a modern-day Tamagotchi. Yeah, take – Take away as well. Feed the and, children. Yeah. Um, I think I've, I think I may have seen that. I think I may have been showing that. And it, but it was was it used to like take the role and stuff? Is I that, think that, that may one? possibly be a way that it can be used, and it can be used that the teacher can put up messages and send messages home to parents through that app as well. Yeah, I do remember. I don't know if I can't remember. If, I remember seeing it, but I can't remember. I remember being told about that side of it where they could kind of like send it home with the the kid. Mm. So, yeah, teachers are definitely using it a lot, but as far as students, it yeah, it just depends on that class, that teacher, that school. Yeah, because I think I've seen quite a lot of that sort of technology being rolled out for teachers, which is good, but I just wondered whether there was a lot of technology being rolled out sort of with for learning. Because I guess one of the things in terms of OT is 
you know, we're taught that we're engaging people in the occupations that they want need to do. And in the last 10, 15 years, the occupations that most people do have gone through a massive change with the advancements in technology. Like 10, well, probably 10 years ago, iPad didn't exist. Mm. I'm, that, I may get that wrong. I can't actually remember what day, what year they were, they were brought out, but it, it's something that didn't exist. And now it's, everyone's got one or, you know, schools have got rows of them, hundreds of them. Mm. That wasn't an occupation that anyone could engage in at the time. And I wonder whether schools and therapy departments in schools are sort of keeping up with that change in how or in the occupations that, you know, kids do or people do day to day because it seems to be changing so quickly. I just wonder how it's... I definitely do find that, especially with your teachers that have been teaching a long time. If you sort of suggest to them that the student might benefit from using a laptop or an iPad, oh, no, but they have to handwrite, you know, this is how it's done. Or they're a bit frightened, like, oh, no, I can't do that. I don't know how to, you know, because we suggest them, you know, you could send the student the notes and then they can just open, oh, no, you know, that's too hard. I I don't know how to do that. Like, that. Some teachers can be a bit funny about it, yeah. So that is that can definitely be a challenge. And some teachers are are better than others too. Like some teachers, I think, see it as something extra they have to do. Oh well, all all my other students are are handwriting now. I have to think about something else for this student. So I, in a way, I kind of think the actual embrace of tech technology being used by students in classrooms has been a bit slow. And if it was a bit quicker, I think. Like, you know, if, if all students were using computers, then it would be like universal design for learning, you know. It, mm. it wouldn't be having to change the class for this one student. They're all using computers. And guess what? Everyone can access now. And that's, that's probably the, the perfect way that I was not able to formulate my words, universal design, <laughs> which I've only not long ago was teaching my students and still couldn't get that word out. <laughs> so, yeah, universal design, as I'm sure most people are aware, is, you know, about designing community space for everyone to access, not an able-bodied section and a disabled-bodied section. But, yeah, I think I think that's what... Because that's kind of what the, I guess, the university is pushing is to integrate that stuff into learning, but for everyone so that everything is accessible. So, yeah, it is. It is. It's universal design for learning. I just wondered whether schools were sort of doing the same or whether that was coming from tertiary down kind of thing. Yeah, from from what I've seen, I think schools are mostly a bit slow slower on the uptake with that but who knows there could be other schools out there that that are doing it i don't know because i just think a lot of the i mean i i will admit i'm a little bit of a tech head um if there's a way to do something without paper and with technology i'll probably do it that way even if it's a pain in the butt (laughs) um but I just think a lot of the issues, so it's, it's probably easier at a university because, like I said, you get to class, every student has a, a computer. They open it up and they're ready to go. Uh, and a lot of the issues that I hear about coming out of schools, it's, you know, quite often the fix might be to implement some sort of technology, whether it's borrowed from the school or they bring it from home, whatever it is. It just makes me wonder why that's not, implemented in the the first place i guess at that sort of design level and i wonder whether that might be part of our dream 
learning promotion job that we're going to invent. <laughs> that would be an amazing job. I would love to do that. That would be. As sort of a, you could do it at a state level, Queensland education level, or whichever state anyone else is in, education level. I just think that they've already got the resources because, like, I've seen the resources at some of the schools. There's there's lots of stuff there that just isn't getting used. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's the one of the big issues even here um, with a lot of educators in implementing technology is they try and look at it as something to add on as opposed to redesigning what's there so that it's just part of. Um, but, yeah, I really like that universal design for learning. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's- I might steal that. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's what it is. I mean, it's some people call it, or here they call it blended learning, but it's it's about making it accessible to everyone. Yeah, universal design for learning, I guess, is one of the new buzzwords or the buzz phrases that's been coming out the past few years. And that's kind of, I guess, the way that the education department is wanting to work is from a whole school approach so we have kind of a tiered system where it's like trying to implement things at the whole school level is ideal and then if you've got to do some focused strategies for a certain number of students then you know that's kind of your next best thing and then it's like you really it intensive adjustments that are just made for that student are kind of your the ones that you want to be doing the least of so that Universal design for learning fits into that top tier where, mm. they, where they want the the majority of the adjustments to be at that whole school approach, yeah. Yeah, because I just think, say, if there's, you know, 100 students at a school that might benefit from what you do, if the whole sort of learning process is designed to be more accessible, then that might cut out 70 of them. Mm. And then you can spend more time either, again, supporting that process or implementing your resilience programs. Um, and then, yeah, exactly, cheering <laughs> um, and spending more time with the, you know, the 30 that are left and yeah, the ones implementing, that, that, I guess, more That need that focus intense and intensive, yeah. Service. Oh, we can fix the world's problems. <laughs> we just need them to listen to us now. It's a dream. <laughs> it is. And I think I'd be really keen if anyone is listening and knows of schools anywhere in the world, I don't care, that sort of have done this kind of thing, I'd be really keen to hear about it, um, as I'm sure you would. Yeah, definitely. Because um, it's – I don't know. OT seems – OT at its core is a very logical profession, I think. There's a lot of stuff that we do that, you know, the, most people would probably just do if they had the resources and, you know, knew it existed. Um, and I've talked about this with a few people, like – most people just do it. We work with the people that, you know, either don't have the resources or aren't quite sure how to do it. We just mm. work with that sort of minority. Mm. And to me, that that just makes sense. We've spent so long redesigning health systems so that health systems are accessible and we've spent God knows how many billions of dollars on universal design and making the public spaces accessible and we've, now probably should move on to education. Yep, and, let's you know. let's turn our focus to the schools. That would be amazing. And I think that's yeah, you know, that's the next generation. Like if they're not being educated purely and simply just because the education is being delivered in a non accessible way, then that's that's creating another issue that someone's gonna have to deal with later on down the track. Well, yeah, yep, you. Me. <laughs> um no, that's that. Yeah, that's that's a can of worms. 
Because mm. I think if because what what that issue is also doing is then stopping our OTs from engaging in the full gamut of what an OT can offer mm. as well. Yeah, like you said at the very start, like you're only getting to see this tiny little bit of a student's context, which, you know, that eliminates a lot of stuff you can do with them, just that. Yeah. Let alone anything else. Mm. I Yeah, but I'd be very keen to see if there's any, even specialist schools maybe. Yeah. That do it differently. Mm. Come and join us in education. Change the world. <laughs> I know, it's hard. I think I'm I'm – one of those people too, I just want to fix everything. I'm just like, oh, I just want to solve this big problem, but you can only do what you I can think do. that's hey? OTs in general. And I don't, I, again, I've had this, I've asked this question to so many people, like, is it the fact that so many OTs are like that, is it because of what we're taught to be or is it because of who is attracted, like the types of people that are attracted to the profession? Oh, I think it's the type of people that, that come to OT because I think for me, I was I was already like that. I came to the OT and I was like, I found my family. I found people who are like me. This is amazing. One of us. <laughs> but yeah, that's it's because I've often wondered like there's so many different courses. It kind of eliminates that as a, a possible course. So many different courses teach the profession in so many different ways. Um, and yet most OTs all around the world are there because they care about people and they want to change things and make things better for people. So, do you think you are extremely occupation-based in your role at the moment? Ooh, I try to be. And I think most of the time I am. Sometimes I kind of have to ask I kind of have to dig with teachers to try and find out you know to try and get them to sort of give me an occupation goal because they might say to me something like oh we want them to respond to requests or we just want to improve their their fine motor skills or their gross motor skills or we just want to manage manage their behavior or so you do have to kind of go digging for those sort of things but it's definitely something that I try to be conscious of what's is it the the types of referrals that you're getting or is it like what's stopping you from being as occupation-based as you would want to be? Is it the fact that – is it the fact – and I'm going to – this is a loaded question. Is it the fact that people don't understand what OTs are and what we do? I think that is part of it. I actually, <laughs> That's always part of it. I actually do, do think that is part of it because I kind of go in and I try and explain, you know, we help kids to be able to access and participate, do those things that they need to do at school. Like I do try to frame it in that occupation way, but people always tend to – I think people tend to see us as kind of like I've heard someone describe like hands, hands, Hands physio, you know, they just deal. They deal wow. with the fine. They deal with the fine, <laughs> fine motor handwriting, kind of stuff. They kind of think about the. They, I think, teachers think about us from that bottom up kind of approach. They deal with sensory. They deal with fine motor, that sort of thing. They don't think about the occupational in occupational therapist. They don't think about that. What do I want the student to? be able to do like they know 
what they want the student to be able to do, but possibly it's because they see us as medical. So they they think they need to talk in that more medical speak, like fine fine motor or that kind of way. Yeah. I've always always argued that we are an outside the medical model profession and the, I agree. The moment that we see ourselves or try and align ourselves with the medical model, we're cutting out 90% of what is uniquely valuable about what we can offer. Mm. I, I, it, That's one of my pet peeves and that's one of the reasons I just don't think I could go back to working in a hospital is it? it's hard to maintain that non-medical sort of aspect of your of, of how we think when you're in surrounded by professions that are suited to that. And, I agree. And what we, our unique, I guess, thing, which is occupation, isn't probably valued as highly as we value it within that setting. I think there's better settings that we can be put into. Mm, I agree. And that's the exact same reason why I couldn't, couldn't, work in a hospital, um, sometimes people, like we had a student last year and said, oh, she wants to go into the hospital, work on the stroke ward or something like that. And I said, I'm really glad that there's people out there that do want to do that because that means that I don't have to because I just can't get get my brain around like occupation focus, like you said, in that medical way. Yeah. And there's, there's uh, certain areas of OT practice that I'm known for getting yelled at about. Um, and you mentioned it before, hands there, hand therapy. I, I can't, I have tracked down someone and I'm going to try and get her on here who's done research into occupation based hand therapy. Wow. Um, I would love to hear that. And again, I'm open minded about it. I'm keen to hear it. I've just never seen anything that would be kind of occupation based. My, my experience, and granted, it's not extensive because I've never worked there. Um, other than placement, yeah, um, was very prescriptive, and it was prescriptive around splints and exercises and that sort of thing. And uh, my brother's a physio, and even he, I remember having a conversation with him once. And he was like, "Even physios don't understand why we do every part of the body except hands." And like you even said before, they're like hand physios. Hand like physio. that's how people see us. Yeah, <laughs> um, which. Does make me wonder why, again, why the general public doesn't understand occupation. And I, I still firmly think it's because we don't explain it. And I wonder whether we don't explain it because we don't fully understand it as a, like, uh, majority of us. Yeah. And I wonder too if it's because our role is so broad and there are roles that you do struggle to see the occupation in. So whether that actually adds to the, confusion amongst therapists and amongst the general public too about what do OTs do because not all of the settings that we work in are occupation-based. I remember sitting through a presentation by Matthew Molinau on – when was that? That was at a state conference on the Gold Coast somewhere. Might have been the Mental Health Symposium actually. And I remember him – it's the first time I've ever heard – it was the first time I'd ever heard of the concept that there's essentially three – I guess, levels of, I guess, occupational practice kind of thing. And it was sort of direct where you are, you know, doing things with people and that's the therapy. There was indirect where you were working with the person to enable them to do it. And then there was consultative um, where you're like 
consulting, I guess. Uh, and I'd never thought about it that way. And he sort of framed it as almost like a spectrum of, you know, from direct to indirect to consultative. And you want to be aiming, no matter where you are, you're going to fit in there somewhere uh, in whatever role you're in. You want to be aiming towards that direct every time because that is sort of where the really, I guess, core OT stuff happens and then everything else is sort of bleeds off that. That's interesting. Um, but it made me think that was when I first went, back into acute here, uh, it was very much uh, that sort of indirect role. Actually, to start with, it was nothing. And then I kind of made it that indirect role so that I was still trying to engage people in occupation. But at the time, I was stuck in a ward. Like, you know, everyone's occupations were outside. Uh, and then it was a matter of, well, what can I do to make this more direct? And it was a matter of sort of changing the role a bit so that That's I can awesome. actually- take people out and do home visits and engage them in the community services like with them and that kind of thing. And granted, that wasn't like 100% the job, which would have been ideal, which was a job that I ended up in later um, over at Mert. But I think that that little – and that was only a part of his his talk, his, um, but that really resonated with me and I still remember it. He'll probably laugh because it was like a two-minute thing that he dropped into this presentation. <laughs> And I still remember it like it was yesterday because that has always resonated with me about this is where you may be somewhere along here, but if we're always aiming at that direct service provision being occupation-based, then you're sort of continually aiming for improvement. Mm. And I wonder, that's why I always wonder like in, I guess, settings that aren't necessarily known for being really sort of occupation, I could say occupation as means, um, whether or not they, one, know where they fit along that spectrum, and two, whether they're actively trying to be more direct with their, their service provision. And I think, I don't know, I just full circle back to hands. Um, I just haven't seen, I've never met a hand therapist that, is like they seem very comfortable with this is their niche, which is fine. Like, it's obviously, people need that service. I just wonder whether it's something that sort of comes under the OT banner if we're not trying to move towards that direct occupation-based service provision. Mm. And there's other areas as well, but oh, I, need, I only need one service area to yell at me at once, <laughs> like one at a time kind of thing. Yeah, and I just wondered, like, in terms of education, like, I can see, like, if I was to start with a blank slate, ignoring everything that was currently put in place in education, I could see that as, like, a monstrously important place that, like, for occupation-based practice. Mm. And then I wonder, okay, and then you compare that to how services are being delivered at the moment. I'm like, well, okay, what's the difference? Like, where are the differences? And they do seem to be systemic in a lot of the cases. But then I wonder for individual therapists whether there are small things because this is, again, this is the process that I went through when I was on acute. If there's small things that you can do within the system that you're working to try and include, you know, even pushing some things, I'm sure you probably are consulted with. You probably just get a phone call saying, what do we do with this? Mm, we do, yeah. Um, and then, you know, pushing towards that direct service provision like and that's something I always put to my students is like, okay, you don't feel like you're occupation-based or even new grads when they graduate and they come out and they're like, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. Well, what can you do 
it's not going to change unless you change it yeah. kind of thing. Something I try and do is work within the gradual release of responsibility framework, which is kind of- I have um, to explain that one because I don't even know what that is. That's a framework that they use in education. It's a teaching framework. So, it sort of starts with- like the teacher, for example, I do, you watch, student watches, and then it's um, we do together, teacher and student working collaboratively, and then it's um, you do, I watch and sort of support, and then it's you do, mm-hmm. like you, the student's able to do it themselves. So, I try to kind of work in that way myself if I want to get a better idea or have some of that hands-on time with the student, I'll start working with them. Like I might work with them and try and hand, like sort of teach them the skill and sort of upskill them to be able to use the skill. Or if there's a teacher aid, I might arrange, okay, I'll go in for a couple of visits and I'll work with the student you'll watch. Then I'll sort of let let you take over and I'll kind of step back a bit and then we'll let so it go, do that go with from the staff there. as well. Yeah. 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 And that's effective? Like I think using that as, a, I guess, a structured thing? I think so. I've had some good success with it. I had a teacher aid that I worked with and I wanted the student to use a program and I'd gone in and sort of tried to work with him and he was a student who was kind of quite happy with ha- how things were going, how he was accessing using laptop and I was trying to get him to use some different technology softwares that might speed things up for him a little bit because he had a physical impairment and he was kind of, oh, no, nah, wasn't really happening. So, I thought, how can I how can I get this in? So, I met with a teacher aide and I upskilled her in, in the program and she was with that student in about six classes a week, I think, and I sort of upskilled her and how to use it and she was kind of my person that went in and kind of trained the student and actually got him using it. So, yeah. So, did she – did you teach – so, that – a uh, little f- sort of matrix framework that you just talked about before, you use that with the teacher aid. Yeah. Did you also teach the teacher aid about that? Like, is that what she used with the kid or was she there just to support the kid after she learned that? I didn't actually directly discuss with her the framework. No, I just kind of explained to her, I guess, in, in layman's terms rather than yeah, yeah. with using a framework, this is how I'd like you to introduce it with the student. Yeah, yeah sweet. Because that's a cool. I mean, I've heard similar sort of. This is how you sort of convey knowledge across to people, mm. um, but I don't think I've ever consciously thought about teaching people like that. Mm. But it makes sense. Yeah, and I did it with a prep student too. We were looking at some different ways to modify the handwriting for him, and it's kind of like you know, depending what task they're doing, there might be a slightly different way to modify it. So I went in a couple of times. Teacher aid was there, and I sort of said, "Oh, you know." If- for this activity, you could do it like this. And then I would go in and she was there kind of doing it and I would give suggestions but let her take ownership of that and then go forward from there. And that's, that's I think that's a really good way of doing it as well because one of the things that uh, with adults anyway, uh, one of the big things is empowering for choice, making them feel like they're – well, not making them feel like it, making them in control of the process and that's – a big part of, you know, motivation. It's a big part of um, self-learning, like understanding themselves and mm. then becomes a big part of their occupational engagement because, you know, all of that stuff gets tied back together through their value system anyway. So, mm. it, it, being able to engage someone 
in an occupation is all good, but there's kind of, it needs to be more than that. It needs to be tapping into their intrinsic sort of motivations and turning it into an intrinsic motivation if it if it wasn't before like yes you're doing this because the teacher is doing it with you but if they feel like they're in control of the process then i would imagine that they're going to engage in it for a different reason you know, mm. engaging it because they might see the importance of it. Yeah, and I think it helps them to see the success and that things are, are working. And I think, you know, if you're trying to start off a strategy by yourself, a student or a teacher aide with a student or whatever, if you kind of can't see the benefits straight away, then they sort of might put it by the wayside. But if you do that gradual release kind of support strategy, then you're kind of supporting them to stay with it until they have that in- intrinsic yeah. motivation. They're able to see the benefit for themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. When you're working with the kids, how do you explain what you do? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Put you on the the question every OT loves. What do you do? How did I do this the other day? Last Friday I was at a school and the kid was in grade five and I just said, oh, hey, I'm someone that the school has got in. I'm just looking at lots of kids handwriting at school and I'm just going to come and have a look at yours. So, I didn't really explain my role at all. I... Yeah, I struggle. I have to say I struggle to explain my role to children. It's hard enough explaining it to adults, let alone explaining it to children. I have a little girl that I support myself just volunteering with the Pajama Foundation as a mentor and she kind of asks me about my job, what I do, and she kind of thinks I'm a teacher and I do try and explain to her, you know, you know, kids have things that they need to do at school and I help them, you know, if they need to be able to access the classroom or they need to be able to do their handwriting and they can't. But, yeah, it's a concept that's hard for her to grasp and she's 10. I think it's a concept. I think that's that's one of the things that I believe – the whole profession struggles with is marketing ourselves because we know we do amazing work and we know that we're valuable to health and education and all of that, but we struggle to get that across to mm. other people, which doesn't do us any favours. Not at all. Um, but the the I, I think because of that too, a lot of people just stop trying to explain it because it is like it's hard. And I think I'm definitely guilty guilty of that or it's I think we all it, are at times it's too hard hard to explain so I just won't I'll just I'll just go with whatever they think I do or whatever and that's where I said I can't remember I was talking to someone a little while ago on one of these podcasts and I explained to it that most people will then resort to practice examples instead of I do trying to explain. I do <laughs> Lately, instead of trying to explain what occupation is and the fact that that's how we work and that influences health etc People go, oh, I give out wheelchairs or I, you know, I help people learn how to cook and that kind of thing. Mm, yeah, that is something I've been doing lately and I'm like, oh, I'm I'm doing so much better at explaining what, what occupational therapists do by, by using examples. But, yeah, I'm kind of not really explaining it. I'm just using something else to explain parts of it but not the whole. Mm. And I think it's, it's hard and it's one of those things that, you know, some people find easier than others. I think it's probably depends on your practice area too and who you're talking to, whereas you've got to talk to kids and adults and mm. I only had to talk to adults, so it was probably a little bit easier for me. I could, you know, spill out the same spiel. <laughs> um, and it would depend on what you're seeing them for. Like if you're seeing them on a 
I, I just know one of the guys that works here was work, used to work in palliative care. I'm like, how do you explain occupation-based practice to we get you back doing what you want and need to do? I'm like, that doesn't work for, uh, say, a palliative care ward. Um, works very well for mental health and, you know, education. It might be, you know, we help you, I don't know, overcome some of the barriers to engaging in the classroom or something to that effect. But, yeah. again, that would need to be... Uh, modified depending on the level of the student. And like you said, you work with little kids right through to high school kids, you mm. know, and the oldest ones are probably, what, 16, 17? Yeah. Right down to four mm. <laughs> kind of thing. And you would explain that to them all very differently. So yeah, be- and, and vastly different levels of impairments, vastly different ways of communicating, like mm. different devices, yeah. It's definitely a challenge. You should. You're going to be the expert at explaining how, like, what OT does, because <laughs> you're just going to have to do it for such a wide range of people. I will. I will make that my, my new goal, Brock. I will start explaining to more people. That's right. What we That's do. what I like to hear. I want to hear it <laughs> twice on the way out of this office. The cleaner will be out there somewhere. We can explain to her what you do. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's and but it's those little tiny things. Like I think one of the biggest issues that OT faces is the fact that we don't we don't market ourselves very well, but we don't use our own language. We're too afraid to use our own language in case someone goes, I don't know what that means. Yeah, and I think that is definitely one of the reasons why I don't. I'm like, oh, people don't 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 really understand what occupation is so how can i use that to explain it but i need to educate them about what occupation is at the same time as i'm explaining my role and that's that's one of the issues i see with thousands of clinicians is that when that happens though then they're no longer talking about occupational deprivation they're no longer talking about occupational disruption they can't talk about occupational injustice or any of the other sort of major concepts that we might look at in different settings because they're they're like if they haven't or they don't think someone will understand, they may not have even tried, but if they don't think that someone understands what occupation is, there's no way they're going to understand all these other more complex sort of concepts. And I think OTs just freeze up a bit whenever that question. That's why I love asking that question because I love watching people <laughs> squirm. That's like the first thing I ask like most students at the start of the year. I'm like, well, what is OT? And you just watch them like, oh, God, oh, no. no, not no, that He's going to ask me. Quick look at the floor. <laughs> um, but it's even better doing it like an OT conference because the same thing happens. I'm like, these people are being- We're still having these problems even after we've left uni. I know. It's probably worse. It's To me, it's worse anyway because I'm like, you guys are doing it. Yeah. Yeah. People are, this is what you do every day and you can't explain it. Mm. It's not that you can't explain it, but sometimes it's just, it's almost like a habit where, you know, for the first couple of months, it might have been really difficult. So people just stop. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, yeah, you know, we, and then then they revert to practice examples when someone actually pushes them for a definition. Yeah. It's so true. I was the same. I was guilty of it. I was, you know, when I worked on the Gold Coast and when I was in a community rehab group, we used to run groups for people with mental illness to, you know, help them connect with each other and connect with community services. So that's what I explained. That's what I did. I explained that to so many people. We run groups to help people with mental illness connect. I'm like, that's the things I did when I was young and dumb. (laughs) Slightly older and probably just as dumb, but now I'm just dumb and opinionated. We're all learning. That's it. And everyone should be, you know, it's the profession itself is evolving. So we need to, much like your, your kids and the technology, you got to keep evolving 
what you do to keep up with the kids and mm. you know we've got to keep evolving to keep up with the profession because it's it's changing along with the world and mm. there is a real i i see a real threat that same well, for exactly the same reason as the kids like technology and that sort of stuff is changing the occupations that people engage in and ot may not be keeping up as well as it should mm. you know there's assessment i've seen assessments functional assessments i use my fingers as quotation because i hate that term <laughs> um that are still being used in some areas that assess people on filling out bank slips Mm, they're like, old. When was the last time you saw a bank slip? Mm. I couldn't even tell you what was on them anymore. Mm. I don't know. And the, but they wouldn't assess you for like internet banking or phone banking, mm. which is how 90% of people, people will re- avoid going into a bank at all costs nowadays. And yet we still assess people in some services, on how they fill out a bank slip. Why do you think that happens? Do you think it's that the people who authored that assessment are no longer working anymore and, like, nobody wants to take the job of, like, updating it to reflect the current climate or are are people not actually making, like, kind of designing new new assessments that are keeping up with the context and so... There's a few things that I think. The the particular assessment that I'm thinking of, and I won't name it, The I've heard on good authority that the person who designed it doesn't even use it anymore. It's that outdated. Oh, um, that's sad. Yet I think services, again, it, it could be partly systemic in that services get used to using what they've got kind of thing. And, you know, they've used it for 20 years. That's what they know. So that's what they keep on using. And the new therapists that come into the service get taught that because that's what they use. That's what's and done, yeah. The other thing is I don't see – I think the the era for a lot of those really formal functional assessment type assessments is dead and gone. Um, I agree. It's more about actually being able to work with someone's occupations as opposed to, you know, the functional tasks that we deem or whoever designed it deemed would be important and that people need to be able to – you know, hit a certain level. Yeah, and I find that too. Like, I don't use a lot of st- standardised standardized assessments. I mainly just rely on clean obs mostly. Like, like, the best assessment is looking at them doing what they need to do, you know. Like, st- standardised standardized assessments are useful. I'm not, I'm not heaping, oh, no, heaping shit on place. them at all. But, yeah, I find I'm, I'm using a lot of clean obs because that, you're getting really relevant con- context-specific information then. Yeah, and I think that's that's definitely the way, I guess, my practice went as well. I wasn't using many standardised assessments at all towards probably the last five, six years of my clinical practice before I came to the uni. Uh, and it was more just that they didn't – there's none that fit, really – the the job that I was doing, uh, I would use some, like I would use sensory profile, but that was more to explore the a, a person's sensory modulation with them. It was nothing to do with me. Mm. I am proud to say I never did a functional assessment for like the last eight, <laughs> eight years of my career. I have rather 
strong views around even just the word function in OT. Oh, really? Yeah. It's one of those things that really gets my goat. Like, function is, is for math. And a function is something where you punch in the same numbers, you're going to get the same answer at the end of it. And humans aren't like that. Mm. You punch in the same numbers a thousand times, get a different answer on the other side. What word would you replace function with? I wouldn't. We okay. don't use it. Okay. <laughs> function is something that – and that's why I think function works for so well for physios because yeah, know, it's- they're working with – muscle movement yeah. and you would expect that if there's a tear in that muscle then this exact movement you could without even seeing a person nine times out of ten if they read that you know say there's a muscle tear in that muscle they could tell you exactly what that person can and can't do because it's the same numbers in one end and the same answer at the other mm. we work i think just the breadth of practice areas that we work means that we work with probably a broader aspect of people's lives mm. than than some other professions, which is Definitely. fine. Like this, I'm not saying that you know we're any better or anything. No, I think every yeah. profession has their own place, and they're all important, and we need them all. Mm. And I think I, to OT's detriment, I think we've tried to be like every single one of them too much, and we've forgotten what we are good at. Um. And I think that's, I think that, uh, alignment with the medical model for, you know, 20 years ago until the last sort of 10, 15 is where that function has come from. Came from. Yeah. Cause that's where if you look at a functional assessment, you look at when they were made. There hasn't been one that yeah. I can think that's widely read. There's a lot of, um, life skills checklists and quality of life checklists and all sorts of other sort of, uh, monitoring type assessments that have come out sort of in the last five or six years. Um, a lot of outcome measures, a lot of models that are just being used, models and frameworks that are being used as assessments, like CAWA, mm. um, as opposed to formalized tick this box if you can fill out a bank form, tick this box, like the MBI is another one that's, you know, who says that the stuff on an MBI is the most important thing to a person? I don't. Most people wouldn't even see. You can fill out an MBI without even talking to someone. Mm. That's what used to annoy me. I'm like, how can I make a judgment on this person when I can fill this form out without ever talking to them Mm. just by standing around and watching what they do? That's one of my issues with function. One of That's probably the main issue with function. I just don't think it fits what an actual OT should be doing. And I know there's a lot of people that, will be pulling their hair out and hate me for that statement alone. There's plenty of other reasons to hate me, I promise. (laughs) Um, But that's, yeah, that's, I I think the moment people start talking about function, those therapists in the discussions I've had with them aren't able to differentiate between function and occupation. A lot of, I've known therapists, I've met therapists that have not been able to do that and will use them interchangeably. I'm like, they're not the same thing. They are very different. If anything, function might fit under, say, task in our taxonomic breakdown. Yeah, yeah. But then that's, you know, we're halfway down Then We've missed all the top end stuff, which is now that we're working top down in the last 10, 15 years or whatever it is, that we miss out on all the good stuff. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because I do hear people using function, the word function, interchangeably with occupation. And that was actually why I, I asked 
ask that question. Mm. So, it's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, there's still- I'm not saying functions completely redundant to health. I think it has its place. I just don't think it's within our profession. <laughs> um, and I know there's a lot of people that will disagree with me, and that's fine. It's what healthy discussions for. Uh, I see. Uh, I guess one of my pet peeves with mental health is a lot of people, purely because I think they don't understand, I guess the power and the value of working with occupation. For a field like mental health, they don't see that we can even do anything straight out of the box. So, they start going to do all these extra trainings and, um, you know, in psychotherapies and that kind of stuff. Occupational therapy just is like the perfect fit with mental health, well, That's I where think. we came from. Like, you know, like having had my own struggles with, with mental health, like I, that was like engaging in occupation is one of the things that brought me back to health. And when I came to occupation, one of the reasons why I could see the value in it was like I'd seen it at work in my own yeah. life. Like it just makes perfect sense. And that's where I think you, you – I have met OTs that sort of have gone into mental health because of similar experience. They've had their own – uh, you know, hiccups or mental health issues and whether they actually saw an OT or just uh, went through a similar process themselves. Because like I said, I think a lot of OT is just common sense. We've formalized common sense and turned it into a profession in a lot of ways. <laughs> Yay! Um, I think a lot of people like, you know, you're staying at home all day, you can't get out of bed. What's the fix? I know. Get out of bed, go and do something, find something that you really value, and then start off small. Like, a, yeah. it's not rocket science. Like, yeah. Yeah. And yes, it's going to be hard. And I'm not saying that's the fix for everything because I know people take things very literally. But in the grand scheme of things, big picture, that's how you get someone from staying at home and not getting out of bed to yeah. get out and doing things. Yeah, start small and build up. Um, that kind of common sense, we've been doing it for years. Like, you know. People that train for, say, sports or train for run a marathon. You don't just get out of bed and go, yeah, I'm going to run 42Ks. Like, mm. you start with one, mm. you move the two, you might jump to five, you jump to six, seven, eight, ten. Mm. Like, you start small, build up. That's how we learn. You don't start grade one doing calculus. You start grade one learning what a number looks like <laughs> and then you build up. It's mm. we've We've taken this- We've taken a really simple concept that a lot of people understand already and we've tried to make it too complex because we feel like that's what we need to be valued when really we just need to go back to what we are good at and what we know for, for now mm. because the other thing is people understand that. If I explain the process to people, like the basic OT process, people get it. Mm. I don't need to try and explain all this really complex stuff when this is what we do. And that annoys me because then by that stage, there's a lot of OTs that, again, are too scared of people not understanding what we do, so they don't even try and explain it. Find the very simplest thing that an OT does, which is we engage people in occupation. Find the very simplest definition of occupation. Use that. Whatever it is. Yeah. Use that and just start. Yeah, start it. small. Build start up. Start telling everyone. Mm. It gets easier with practice. Like anything. <laughs> yeah. Start small, build it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that common sense. And I think if we do that, if more OTs did that, more people would know what we do. 
from a a core values kind of point of view rather than oh yeah OTs yeah they're the ones that gave me a wheelchair when yeah, I was in hospital job. Like, yeah um I was talking to someone I think it might have been um another peds OT who was talking about a similar thing and she was like you know people think OTs you know, do you say sensory stuff? And I'm like, yeah, but then they come to me and they're like, wait a minute, you're not playing in a ball pit. Like, <laughs> like yeah, like that's not what OT is. Yeah, pet peeves. I have so many pet peeves. Well, thanks for coming in and chat. Like, I didn't actually say this at the start, but I should have. This is the first one I've actually done in person, so I had no idea how it was going to go. Um, but, yeah, it's been really fun. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks. Awesome. We'll have to uh, – Find something else that we can argue about <laughs> in the future. Do another one. We will. Lovely, lovely. Well, thanks again. No and uh, we'll talk soon.